Good morning. It is great to be here with you guys. It is a it is a fantastic. <laughs> it is such a great day, um, and it's fun watching um, Wendy chase after her son, trying to figure out, trying to wrangle him over. So there's empathy for that. Um, we had a great hike yesterday. We had a men's hike. There's 15 guys that showed up. It was awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Jude. Yeah. There we go. My wife's clapping. She's like, my, my husband was not here. It's great. Um, and uh, we met a woman named Stacy. We had a spiritual conversation with her, Austin, Grant, and I. And one of the questions she asked was, oh, so this is a startup church. Why is, why is your church all dudes? And I was like, oh, it's a, it's a men's hike. That's, that's what it is. But I think it would be interesting if we just looked at her and said, hey, you know, this is just it's an all-male church. Like, what's wrong with that? Um, so that was fun. It was a great time. We were at the Pinnacles. Um, oh, I got to hear a lot. I got to overhear a lot of different conversations, and that was fantastic. And so I want to spend a brief moment just talking about the whole idea of overhearing. Um, last summer, I overheard my wife planning a surprise for me for my birthday. And as she was planning it, I was just getting really excited. I'm like, okay, cool. Something's going to happen on my birthday, right? <laughs> and then my birthday comes, and then there's pretty much like, I think nothing happened that day. I think very little actually happened that day. Um, but from that day forward, um, there was a message each day from someone. Okay, so someone gave me like a birthday greeting for the next 45 days. <clears throat> but I was, I was actually pretty disappointed um, on my birthday day itself. And I think that's kind of what happens when you overhear a conversation. So I was right that something, something was going to happen. I just didn't know exactly what it was, and it got my expectations up. And I know going through Genesis, reading through Genesis has not been easy. This had a point, right? You guys are wondering what the point was. Um, going through Genesis has not been easy. And so one kind of uh, encouragement I'd give you, or even, what do you call it, caution, is that as you're reading, you're overhearing a conversation you're overhearing a conversation that was meant for the nation of Israel primarily, right? And then secondarily through the Holy Spirit for us. And so as you overhear that conversation, sometimes we're going, it's gonna be difficult. It can be very difficult to interpret what its meaning is. And one of the things we wanna do first is to recognize who the, who the primary audience was for the human authors, and that's an origin story for the nation of Israel. And we are listening in on that. And we start as we listen in, then we figure out, okay, what does the Holy Spirit want to say after we recognize it's meant for the nation of Israel? And so I think Austin and I were talking, I think last week about, you know, how come there's all these, these nationalistic type emphases within and things about nation? And that's going to continue um, in this chapter today. Well, because it's a, we're overhearing a conversation between nations. Well, particularly we're overhearing one conversation with the nation of Israel and their origin story. So I want to encourage you guys to... Be patient with yourself as you guys read through this text, as you guys continue to wrestle with it, um, and to recognize that there's, there, there have been macro themes that I've been repeating through pretty much every sermon, things like covenant, right, and God's faithfulness, and faith versus fear, or faith in the context of fear, and these different family nations that come out, right? Those are these macro themes, and so when you're wondering what is going on, well, you can always kind of at least go back and wonder, okay, maybe these, these kind of themes set the parameter for what we're looking at. Okay, and to that end, I also want to ask you, and this is another challenge, makes it difficult, is it's possible, too, that some of the things that you've learned um, through the course of being in church may not actually reflect what the text is saying, okay? And uh, this is not meant to be an attack on your church. It might actually be an attack on our ability to hear because sometimes we hear what we want to hear, 
Okay, so for instance, you may have understood the Abrahamic covenant to be a unilateral covenant. Unilateral meaning God does all the work. But as you notice, there is an aspect of this covenant that goes both directions. I think Nick and I were talking about this yesterday. There is aspects of this covenant that go both ways. Like God says, I, he, tested, he tests Abraham, and then he sees Abraham is faithful, and then he's going to keep this covenant because Abraham is faithful. So there is a, a, a relational aspect to the way God makes his promises. Okay, so those are some things that we get into this section. Um, I'm actually going to start in Genesis 24 today, and I'm going to work backwards. Okay, I'm going to start in Genesis 24. I'm going to work backwards. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. Genesis 24, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. I know in your life groups, you may have read more than that, but I'm just going to read 1 through 9. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. That's a great opening line. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to it, said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The Bible is sometimes annoyingly repetitive, right? And there's actually a lot of repetition in, in 24. And one of the repetitions here is, don't take my son back there, okay? I think it's like three times. Don't take my son back there. Don't take my son back there. Don't take my son back there. Why? Always goes back to the macro theme of covenant, right? God has made this sacred pact with Abraham. And he's like, you're give, you're, I'm going to give you this land, and you will stay in this land. Um, there will be a time where you won't have this land, but this, this is your promised land. This is what I'm giving to you. Okay, so that's the first kind of a framework that we want to that we want to come to this passage with. The second, as you'll notice, this is you know before online dating, and so the dad has the responsibility of finding a bride for his son. Okay, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case in all all the time, but this is one thing that's happening now. I love it. Hi, got the garbage guy coming through. This is great. Um, and so that's one aspect of, of where we are in this text. I wonder if I should pause. I'll, I'll just keep going. You guys can do this. All right, I'll try not to be distracted either. Thanks, Cody and Catherine. There you go. And so what we have here is we, we need to figure out how do we get a bride for Isaac? And then I'll just make a couple comments on that. First of all, there's this strange thing with putting his hand under his thigh, right? That's, that's a swearing ritual, right? And the person who's swearing the oath puts his hand under the person he's swearing an oath on behalf of, right? So that's the first aspect that you see. And then the second is you'll notice um, there's a problem and we're going to get into that problem. And the problem is 
Not only did God promise the land, but he also promised a people. And in order to have a people, you need to have babies. Okay. In order to have babies, you need to get people need to get married. And Isaac doesn't have a wife. And so that's a problem. And he's not supposed to take a wife from the people around him. Now, why is that? Why is it not allowed for him to intermarry? Well, we don't, it doesn't say explicitly, but one of the things you'll notice throughout the history of Israel, especially in Genesis, is um, Abraham does not have a great relationship with these nations, as well as these nations don't behave great. They are not followers of God. They are not, fear, they are not God-fearing, and there's a moral um, corruption within these Canaanite cities, particularly like Sodom and Gomorrah. So there is an activity that uh, there, is a, there is a sense implicitly, and it will become explicit, that um, Israel is supposed to keep separate from these other nations. Okay, and we're going to talk more about that. Israel is meant to keep separate from these other nations. And so what that means, he, need, he needs, to, needs to go back and find, uh, Abraham is sending a servant to go back and find a wife from his own people. Now, some of you may wonder, wait, isn't that kind of incestuous? You know, isn't that kind of a strange way to do it? In a sense, yes. In a, in a sense, it is incestuous. But if you look at the way nations are formed in Genesis, it's always based on family. Okay, so when we talk about ethnicity, we talk about nation, which is ethne in the Greek. We're talking about cultures, and these cultures come from families. And so even when you see something about the story of Noah or Noah's uh, youngest son, you're seeing the origin of a nation, of a neighboring nation from the story of Genesis. And the origin of a family and the origin of a nation are almost synonymous within the book of Genesis, okay? So those are some aspects that are happening. And again, we are overhearing that conversation. Um, and last thing I want to show you, I wanna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I just wanted to cover some of the verses. It's 67 verses in this chapter, and I'll talk about the rest of this chapter uh, next Sunday. Um, but the thing I want you to notice is at the very end, uh, Genesis 24, 67. And this is how he meets Rebecca, because throughout the course of 24, he meets Rebecca, who becomes his wife. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So that's an interesting ending to the story, and it should be a celebration, and it is. And yet, there's clearly a reference to Sarah's passing, to his mom's death. And that's what we're going to turn to in 23. Okay, We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about death in chapter 23 and how that becomes the context for being able to... Uh, expand the family, right? Which is what Abraham is setting out to do. Okay, I'm gonna read from, I'm gonna read chapter 23. I'll, I'll just read verses one and two. <clears throat> Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arbra, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And I think this is an important event to note because often people make the comment that women are not viewed highly in the Bible. And yet not only do we get Sarah's age, but we also get really a whole chapter um, devoted to her death and to her burial, right? And frankly, it's mostly her burial. And so this is a significant turning point in the life of Israel. Having a death of a matriarch um, and a significant person in the life of the covenant. And the first thing I'd, I'd have you notice is, yes, it tells you how long she lived. She died in the land of Canaan, 
which is going to be important. And then Abraham goes to mourn for her. He sets up a tent, and that's the way they mourned um, the loved ones. He sets up a tent for Sarah, and he goes in, and he weeps for her. And the Bible is really sparse on emotional details, but when it gives you details, it's important for us to pay attention to them. Abraham weeps. He weeps. And he may do so privately, but there's no doubt the narrator wants us to understand that Abraham experienced great sorrow and was willing to express it for his wife of, I don't know how many years, probably close to 100 years, right? Most of which, was, most of which wasn't lived in Canaan and the promised land, but in mostly in Haran. And so I've been thinking about this idea of death. I think COVID has been, um, you know, frankly, a season where we've been confronted with death. And I know some of you have been touched in our, in our family too, um, by the death of loved ones. Some, I'm, I'm frankly, in our family, not so much from coronavirus, but from other um, incidents. And it's just been particularly painful that it's difficult to grieve. <laughs> It's been really difficult to grieve in this season. And I've been thinking how every culture handles death differently. And I've been thinking about this idea of grieving. You know, we're probably like, you know, a good number of you watching WandaVision and thinking about grief and the expressions of grief and how to handle it. And I wonder if our culture is very ill-equipped to handle death. Because the ancient Near East had very distinct death traditions, right? including this weeping, this tent, and we'll, what we'll see as burial. But I remember um, recently, maybe in the last four or five years, where um, one of Caleb's um, soccer friend's father passed away. And I remember sitting in a room at the, at the morgue with his body, or a mortuary with his body and his wife present and their, and their son and their daughter, and just having nothing to say. I had nothing to say and I was terrified. Not because I was creeped out by the presence of a corpse, but because there was this overwhelming grief that I did not know how to speak into. And I think it's fascinating that a lot of times in our culture, we see grief as a moment to be fixed. We want desperately to avoid that feeling and to fix it by saying something. That's why I wanted to say something so much. But if you've encountered or experienced um, death of a loved one, there's not a lot you can say. There's no fixing um, that emotion. And I think there's something truly um, authentic and important about the way the ancient Near East, and especially Israel, learned how to handle death. And it wasn't with words. And it wasn't fixing it, because there was a time of mourning, and it didn't necessarily involve words. But there's something sacred about this. There's something sacred about this death and, um, and then we also get into it because we talk about burial, right? The next part of this chapter is about burial. So let me keep reading from verse three. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. 
And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. So the first thing that I want you to notice, it says he rose up from before his dead. So there's rose up sounds like there was this time of laying down in terms of grieving, right? So there's, it sounds like he's went through this mourning period and that was the time when he's in the tent and weeping. So there's this prescribed time for that. And then he rises up and he goes to the people of the land and he makes this statement. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. And this is an important statement. Again, that's a macro theme within Genesis because Abraham does not yet have a home. A sojourner is nomadic. He does not have a place to rest. He does not, he's not able to own property. Actually, the second part tells us why he's not able to own property because he is a foreigner. He does not belong in this land. He is not a, he's not a Hittite citizen. And so the first thing I'd also have you notice about the term foreigner, it's an ethnic distinction. It's an ethnic distinction because Abraham is living um, as a foreigner ethnically. And I've been thinking about this idea of foreigner and ethnicity and race and what it means to be a foreigner in light of these highly publicized attacks on Asian Americans, especially in the Bay Area, but all over the country. Um, and in particular in the Bay Area, um, elderly. And I've been asked by one of our leaders to, you know, how to process this. And I frankly haven't had a good answer. But I did have one thought as I was looking at this passage, or at least a story. You know, about three years ago, I was having lunch with a friend from Garden City, our Sunday church, and we were walking south. I remember exactly where we were walking south on Bascom, around the San Jose Los Gatos border. Um, and as my friend and I were walking, someone yelled from the car, go back to your country. And I remember just feeling kind of shock and like, did that just happen? And my friend just looked at me and brushed it off. And we're both Asian Americans who were born in the US. Like this is, this is our country. And so um, initially I thought, I, I just kind of put it out of my head. And then later um, I felt some anger and indignation um, about that. And I still feel that today. And yet as I reflect on this text about Abraham's statement, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. I don't think Abraham felt bad for himself. Okay, I don't think there was any pity in that statement. I think he's stating a fact about himself. In fact, I don't think he had any expectation or even desire to be a member of the Hittite nation. And so the first thing I would confess is I actually do want to be regarded as a citizen of this country. I do, I do want that. And yet the other emotion that I feel after looking at this is I am grateful for that experience of being a foreigner here because it brings me some affinity with what it means for Abraham to have been a sojourner and a foreigner. And there's not only an ethnic meaning to that, right? There's a deeper meaning where as Christians, we are sojourners and foreigners to this land. We are not citizens of this earth. We are, we are heavenly citizens. And to that end, we don't need to seek citizenship or belonging or to fit in within this world, within, with this, within this earthly citizenship. And yet, in a sense, that is what Abraham's asking to do. Because when you bury someone, you, he, he's buying land, and that's something only a citizen can have, okay, land. So what's the deal? What, what is happening here? 
Well, the first is there's something significant about death, and it's not just about the memory of the loved one. Okay, it's definitely included in that. It is certainly to remember Sarah that he buries her um, in Canaan. But death for Abraham is not only about the past, it is also about the future. Because if he was concerned about the past and where they had spent most of their memories, then he would have sent Sarah, he would sent her body back to be buried in Haran, where they had spent most of their days. But he's not concerned about the past, or not, 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 not solely concerned about the past. He's also looking at the future. And he's looking at his own future, because thinking, he's also thinking about where he will be buried and where his son will be buried, and where his son's wife will be buried, and where their son will be buried, and this is what, where it turns out to be. And so there's something significant about death that it's not just a pointer to the past, it's also a pointer to the future, and it's how Abraham views the future. Because he sees in this burial ground, this is the land that God eventually will give me. This land is a signpost of the promise of God that will eventually be fulfilled. See, this is another aspect of the Christian life that's happening here, that we have this aspect where we are already, but not yet. Abraham has been given this land by God, and yet he hasn't possessed it yet. It is already true for him, but it hasn't yet been made manifest. Just as we have been, we are children of God and beloved and forgiven and holy and blameless and righteous, and yet we haven't fully manifested that in our behavior. We call that sanctification. And so, there is something significant about this burial ground, and let's keep reading in this interaction. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. He's the landowner. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. <clears throat> no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and, Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels, according to the weights current among the merchants. Uh, I'm going to keep reading. I lost my place a little bit. So the field in Machpelah, which was, east, which was to the east of Monre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So we have this whole like negotiation process where the Hittites admire Abraham. They see him as a prince of God among them. So they want to give him the land. And yet Abraham refuses. This is one of those situations where you, he doesn't want it for free. He actually wants to pay the full price. And he lets Ephron uh, say what the full price is, 400 shekels, 400 shekels of silver. And so what, um, what I see there 
is he wants, Abraham is interested, and I'm sure you talked about in your life groups, he's, he's interested in, he wants it to be completely unmistakable and non-negotiable that he bought this land and it will for, forever be part of his family. Because again, it's not just his wife's bearing place. It is his family's bearing place. And it is, the, it is a signpost of God's promise in the future that God will give him this land. And so the way we can think about death and the burial, and the burial place is that it is an outpost, a reminder of God's faithfulness in the future. And he wants a guarantee by doing everything legally. I think someone in our life group talked about that. Everything was done legally, above board, without reproach, that he would fully own and possess this land. And that's why he pays full price. It's one of the, the few times it's okay, whatever ethnicity you are, to pay full price. And that's what he does. And so then the question is, how do we apply this? Like, how, what does this mean? I think we really struggled as a life group trying to figure out how do we think about this, right? What, what do you do with this passage? And so I think there's a couple different things I would say in that regard. The first is that there's a sacredness to death that is costly. And I used to wonder why people spent so much money, for instance, on funerals, because the person who passed away, they don't care, right? They don't care what you spend. And yet I've realized that's a myopic, that's a very short, a very uh, self-centered viewpoint or, or narrow viewpoint of what burial means. Because what Abraham is concerned with in Sarah's death is, yes, she's the repository of all these memories. And yes, there was a tragedy in her being lost, but there's also a future. Her death also represents a future and a promise of God because through her, the promise of God have been or being fulfilled. Okay, so there is something about keeping death sacred and spending money on a burial that is much bigger than for the person who passed away. It is for future, it is for the family and for future generations and a trust in that. The second I would say is there is a respect that Abraham has for this host culture. He's not interested in being a sojourner. I'm, I'm sorry, he is a sojourner and foreigner. He's not interested in being a citizen and yet he does everything above board and he has respect for that host culture. And that is something that we, you know, we have abided by the county regulations um, in how we gather and how we meet. There are certainly times when we are supposed to um, not listen to man and, and listen to God. But in those, there's very few cases of that. And in all other cases, we are meant to respect our host culture. Um, and then lastly, um, the application that I would give is to be willing to invest in signposts for the covenant. Okay, this act or this burial ground was a signpost for the future covenant that God would make, would fulfill his promises. And so when we think about us as Christians, we have a responsibility in our own, in ourselves to point to the greater covenant, the covenant made by Jesus Christ with us, because that's what we are. We are signposts. And so for us to invest and to pay full price for other signposts, that would point to the eternal covenant. Okay, what do I mean? I mean, I just mean giving. I mean, supporting different ministries. I mean, supporting the community of this church. I mean, I mean caring for the poor. All those ways of spending money, of, of buying material things or paying for material things as a way to further the kingdom because they are signposts of the covenant. Now, when we serve, when we're out here today, we are signposts of the covenant because God does actually care about the material things in pointing to him. Right? There's a lot of geography throughout scripture 
because it points back to him. There's so many geographic symbols that point back to God and spirituality. And then finally, when we invest in these things, what we're saying is there's something beyond the grave. Okay, for Abraham to buy this burial ground in a land that wasn't his tells you that he believed there's something that goes beyond death. There was a promise of God that endures beyond the death of his wife. And so for us as Christians, it means we are always carrying around the death of Jesus. We are always carrying on resurrection. We don't have to be afraid of death. And it doesn't mean we have to bring up the name of Jesus every time someone mentions someone dies. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we don't have to be afraid of it because we have a meaning that goes beyond the grave because of what Jesus accomplished for us. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the gift of the full range of human emotion you've given us, including and especially grief. Lord, would we realize how grief is not an exclusive emotion? that none of the emotions are exclusive. We can, that Abraham in this chapter carried alongside grief as well as a hope and belief in the future and the future promises that you would fulfill. And so Lord, would we carry that same hope and grief with us, the both the death and resurrection of Jesus as we walk as sojourners and foreigners in this land? Would we recognize the sacredness of death and not be afraid um, to, to pay full price in remembering and looking towards the future? Would we have respect for our host culture? And would we live um, as signposts and markers of a future covenant of the already and not yet? We pray this in your name. Amen.